I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, the not-so-sweet backstory of your favorite fake sugar. Americans want to have their cake and eat it too, quite literally. People said that in the industry, and artificial sweetener was a way to do it. Then, why we fear flying, even though the stats are on our side. I realized that what was triggering me to think about it at that point was the sound of the engine revving up. And so I actually downloaded the sound of an engine revving up, and I sat at home on my couch and I listened to it over and over again until I associated that sound with me sitting on my couch at home instead of thinking about the probabilities in the plane. And that really helped me. Plus, you don't have as much control over your medical data as you'd think. So in essence, what happens is a commercial dossier about you and your medical problems exists, and it is part of this big multi-billion dollar trade. That's just ahead on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the mid-1960s, a chemist was trying to figure out how to develop a drug that would do a better job of treating ulcers. And in the middle of his experiments, he licked his finger, as many of us do, to try to get better hold of a piece of paper. But what he tasted was really strange. Something on his finger was so sweet. The substance became known as aspartame, 200 times sweeter than sugar. One of the first big deal sweeteners, saccharin, had been discovered almost a century before. But aspartame, which went on to be marketed under the name brand NutraSweet, was a blockbuster. And it's now in all sorts of things, jams and puddings and drinks, cereals, gums, the list keeps going on. And aspartame came along at an almost perfect moment, a moment when Americans were worrying more and more about their weight. At first, fat seemed like the enemy, but increasingly, the enemy has seemed to be sugar. And to combat it, we've turned to artificial sweeteners. 40% of adults, 25% of kids report consuming artificial sweeteners. Um, that's an increasing trend, so these surveys are repeated every few years, and so we know that the trend is on the increase. Megan Azad is the lead author of a study looking at how artificial sweeteners affect our health and whether grabbing a diet drink every now and again might help. She says one thing to know right off the bat is that if you don't think you consume artificial sweeteners, you may be wrong. Even people who don't report consuming these products have detectable levels of artificial sweeteners in their blood or urine. Um, and that's, I don't think they're being dishonest on the surveys, but it's a reflection that many of us are consuming these products without knowing it. So they're not only in diet sodas or the little packets that we put in our coffee and tea. They're also increasingly used in a lot of foods. So things like yogurts, um, salad dressing, pasta sauce. So we're consuming them more than we probably even know. Azad is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics and Child Health at the University of Manitoba. And what she and her colleagues found was surprising. As Americans have become more concerned about high-calorie sugar and turned to low- or no-calorie sweeteners, it has not helped us lose weight. People who use artificial sweeteners, Azad found, experience weight gain. They have increased incidence of obesity and hypertension, diabetes, heart problems. But how could it be that if you're stripping a whole bunch of sugar out of your diet, there's no benefit? 
Yeah, well, it's a great question, and there's some interesting um, theories. So one of them, you mentioned stripping the sugar out of our diet. One possibility is that we're not actually doing that, right? So we're we're drinking diet sodas, but then we're eating ice cream and cake and pizza. And there is some evidence for that, that people feel a permission since they save their calories on the beverages, they could go um, eat other food. There are other possible ways that artificial sweeteners might be doing strange things to us. And this is where it gets really interesting. One has to do with your gut bacteria. So those are those little critters who hang out inside you and help you digest your food. So depending on the the particular mixture of gut bacteria a person has, um, that will partially determine how many calories they actually extract from the food they're consuming. So this is why two people consuming the same diet might lose or gain different amounts of weight because they have different gut microbiomes. And so there's some evidence, at least in rats, that artificial sweeteners shift the microbiome in a way that predisposes um, the person to gain more weight. The final possibility may be the most interesting and weirdest of all, and it's the possibility that our body thinks that fake sugar is real sugar, and it presses all of our buttons accordingly. We have evolved as a species over millions of years to react in particular ways to sugar. Um, So we set off certain hormone signaling pathways when we eat sugar, and those pathways are not only triggered by the calories in the sugar, but actually in many cases triggered by the perception of sweet taste. So with an artificial sweetener, you still get that perception of sweet taste um, and your, your body's tricked because then you have no sugar calories to metabolize. So there's a theory that if you do this um, repeatedly, continuously, year after year, that you might actually reset your metabolism in a way um, that's setting you up for more weight gain. Really? So your brain is responding like this is sugar. Right. And somehow that's doing something funky to your body. Uh, Essentially, you think you're tricking your body, but you can't trick it. Yeah, the trick's on you maybe, right? In rodent studies, scientists are starting to get some clues as to what might be happening in people. Though, of course, rodents are not people. And so there have been some experiments where they provide the artificial sweeteners to mice or rats that are pregnant and then look for effects in the offspring. Um, And they've detected that the offspring of these um, pregnant mice consuming the artificial sweeteners are more likely to become um, obese as they grow up into adults. They're also more likely, even though they themselves were never exposed to the sweeteners, um, when they become adults, if they're given the choice, they'll go for the Fruit Loops. Um, It's the Fruit Loops study um, rather than the regular mouse chow. So they've been sort of hardwired to like sweet things because of this exposure in utero. Azad says before her work studying sugar substitutes, she used to use them every day in her tea. But that was then. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> I just put milk in my tea. Um, and I, when I have time to bake, I just kind of cut the sugar in half because uh, a lot of recipes are too sweet anyways. Megan Azad is now in the midst of tracking 3,500 women, human women, who she started looking at during pregnancy. And she's now following to see what happens to them and their kids. She says so far, the moms who drink artificially sweetened drinks do not seem to be consuming fewer overall calories than mothers who don't consume artificial sweeteners. An industry lobbying group, the Calorie Control Council, says that they still believe that these sweeteners are a good way to help you control your weight. Americans, at least historically, have embraced that belief. After all, it's a solution to a tricky problem. Americans want to have their cake and eat it, too, quite literally. People said that in the industry, and artificial sweetener was a way to do it. 
Carolyn Thomas is a professor of American studies and a vice provost at the University of California, Davis. And she says that as food has become a bigger part of our economy, finding something that could help you deal with those pesky calories, that's become pretty important. Artificial sweetener helped expand grocery stores because now you could have a diet product and a non-diet product. It expanded the number of food ads in magazines and the number of stories about eating and diet in newspapers. In a way, if you just look at the, you know, the number of times one talked about food increased, which, of course, contributes to a world in which you're constantly being told there's something to eat right now and you'll be happier. Our romance with artificial sweeteners is a strange one, and it involves war, gumballs, and a former secretary of defense. The story started to unfurl for Carolyn Thomas about a decade ago when she was having breakfast at a place that I've always wanted to have breakfast at, Café du Monde in New Orleans. And pretty much everyone was having what you have at Café du Monde, coffee and pillowy square beignets. They bring them to you right out of the fryer, so I'm told, and they're topped with a pile of powdered sugar. And Thomas was watching the scene around her, and she noticed something odd. To put in their coffee, people were requesting those small pink and yellow and blue packets from the waiters. And Thomas thought, this is a strange juxtaposition. Piles of sugar for breakfast and sugar substitute in your coffee. And she ended up writing the book, Empty Pleasures, the story of artificial sweeteners from saccharin to Splenda. What she discovered was that in post-war America, people felt like better living through chemistry was possible. Before the war, though, people wanted their sugar, and they wouldn't settle for substitutes. Artificial sweeteners had first been used in the American food supply kind of as a secret. They were developed in the 1870s. They were first used in carbonated beverages because per part, saccharin, that was the first one, was cheaper Mm -hmm. than sugar. So it was a good Mm -hmm. substitute. But they got caught up in the pure food and drug controversies of the progressive era. And when many Americans found out that this coal tar derivative, this substitute for healthful sugar was in their sodas, they rebelled. So soda manufacturers were <laughs> the really... opposite of what you think. Wait, what? This is a diet soda? That's not acceptable. Exactly. I want my right. sugar, right? Right, right, right. And so the soda companies were, were pretty gun shy to get back into this marketplace because they'd taken a hit. Hmm. But the canners didn't have that same experience. So uh, I tell the story in the book about... Abbott Pharmaceuticals in Chicago, um, reaching out at a kind of a food technology conference to um, some canning companies and Mm. offering them some free product. And they had market research that showed that American women were increasingly concerned about weight. Mm. So they kind of gave them the paint by numbers version of how to build a marketplace. And Mm. And it was kind of like they could be at the at the beginning of the future. The future of food was that you wouldn't be tied down through calories and it would be helpful for Americans. Hmm. And think about all those canned peaches sitting on the right. shelves, right? Canned fruits and peaches. People can buy fresh now with new supermarkets. So Canner saw that there was a, a chance for them to sell more, but I also think a chance for them to be to see themselves as innovators and partners right. with pharmaceutical companies. And this is after World War II. Remember, 
innovation was kind of embodied in the future of what chemistry and pharmaceuticals Mm. would bring. Right. It's interesting that you talk about the calorie thing because I think that's such a... I mean, it's obviously a big part of, like, why you use artificial sweeteners in your coffee versus sugar in your coffee. But it is also true that when you get into the 50s and people are consuming more and they want to have more stuff and they, you know, you know, they might want to buy 50 pairs of shoes, let's say, you can't eat 50 meals a day. Like, you cannot... You, you can't scale up in the same way that you can go from having two pairs of shoes to 10 pairs of shoes if you make more money. You can't be like, well, I used to eat three meals a day, but now I eat 10, right? So, but but one thing you can do is I guess you can eat more food if the food has fewer calories, like each time you eat it. Right. So there's all kinds of opportunities to be consuming food throughout the day if the food doesn't have calories in it. Right, right. Right, which is sort of the functional foundation of food to deliver calories and energy. There was actually a, a meeting of um, kind of the, the, the leading marketers of artificial sweeteners in the 1960s, and they they invited women's magazine editors and uh, supermarket execs and uh, food manufacturers to come, and they served a whole meal, all of it, from, you know, the, the hors d'oeuvres to the desserts, all of it with artificial sweetener, you know, kind of mm. like, can you believe there's only 500 calories in this meal? And they delivered, there was a kind of a keynote speech, and the keynote speech talked about how there was this condition of prosperity stomach. That's what Americans were suffering from, prosperity stomach. There's so much good stuff to eat, and of course people want to have it all the time. But what are you going to do about that prosperity stomach that keeps growing? Here's the answer, right? Mm. Diet, food. So do you feel like, in a way, the the role of the first people who were marketing artificial sweeteners to you was to convince you to eat more? Yeah, you can fit in more. And and um, I think the story of Tilly Lewis is just one of my favorites. Tilly Lewis was a, a tomato canner. And Tilly was the first one, as far as I can tell, who actually figured out how to manufacture the product in her plant and brand it with a marketing message and Tilly Lewis had this brand of, you know, diet fruits and diet dressings and diet puddings. And, and she went around the country talking to women's page editors, right, from different newspapers. And they ran these stories, and they called it the Tasty Diet 21-Day Plan. And that was basically her message. She said, you know what? She had problems. Mm. She loved to eat. Doctors had told her to just do without and she said, you know what? I don't have to, yeah. I figured out the chemistry, which, of course, she didn't. Her chemist figured it out. But I've now created the food that means you don't have to have restraint. You can have it all because I'm a woman and I understand and I've, I've given you a diet with pleasure. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Carolyn Thomas, author of the book Empty Pleasures, the story of artificial sweeteners from saccharin to Splenda. Was it initially hard to sell people on the idea of transitioning away from a food that was real, came from a plant, they'd always known it, their parents knew it, to something that like came from a lab? It was. I, it helped that there was a war, and it helped that sugar was hard to come by. So it, I think it took that experience of rationing sugar. Sugar was the first product to be rationed during the war. It was the last product to stop being rationed. Hmm. And I did some research on the use of artificial sweetener um, during World War II in the 50s, in the early 50s, before there was like a marketed product on the shelf. 
And you can see that women start to use the little tablets, those little, some people might remember from their grandmothers, you know, those little tiny white pills. And they became a favorite hostess gift, which I think Mm. surprises a lot of people. So there was that experimentation in the home. Women couldn't get sugar easily. And if they did, they needed to put it in a baked good for their child, right, or give it to their husbands, save it for the soldier, So some of the experimentation that helped artificial sweetener improve its image came from women really going out Mm. and seeing, you know, what can I have for me? Right. Is there like a campaign, a marketing campaign that jumps out to you that was marketing uh, sugar substitutes that just makes you think like this was a really interesting or, or an emblematic approach to marketing these kinds of products? Well, I think that has to be NutraSweet. Some may remember in the early 1980s opening the their mailbox and getting a little set of three gumballs and a stapled to a, a piece of paper. Last year, over two million people got their first taste of NutraSweet. In of all things, a gumball. What's NutraSweet? It's a sweetening ingredient that isn't fattening, isn't artificial like saccharin, tastes just like sugar, and sounds just too good to be true. This is a Nutra sweet and combined with a little kind of red and white swirl, right? And that was for children. I was a child. I opened that up and ate those gumballs. (laughs) I brought it in and my mom found it when she came home. And I was like, yum, this is great. So the professional team that got both FDA approval for Nutra sweet and marketed it massively, not as a diet product, not for limited use, but actually... This was the nutritious sweet. And as they would say, nature didn't make this, but it's what nature intended. That message that we've finally made the sweet that your body wants. Yeah, that ad changed the world. Did the pharmaceutical companies or the food companies ever have any concerns that, um, you know, maybe these products were not super well tested or they could have downsides that we didn't know about? The first diet food that was marketed widely was something called Diet Delight, and uh, it used sodium cyclamate, which was uh, sucral. And they, over the 20-year period between the early 1950s and then uh, 1969, they had lots of doubts. And you can see that the doubt that the chief technologist expresses you know, really comes up about every couple of years— like, how do I know that this is, is this really okay, right? And he's provided with research that's being done by Abbott Pharmaceuticals that's letting him know, yeah, here's all these different trials and, you know, here's these results. So that doubt was really kind of kept at bay. And at the same time, his name was Ed Mitchell. He was encouraged to go and talk to, to the FDA, to Mm -hmm. explain to them that he'd been using this for years in Diet Delight and that, you know, this this was something that had value to him and and the fruit growers and it should be something more widely distributed in the marketplace. And I think the irony is in 1969 when uh, the government actually did declare that sodium cyclamate was unsafe and took it off the shelves, the California canners and growers had just canned their entire year's worth of product in sodium cyclamate, which, as they described it, burying it 
would require the, the space of a football field just to bury the stock of food they had Did they canned bury and it? lost. Did they bury and it? They, no, they actually sent it overseas, I, I believe, <laughs> I to South America. Uh, but they did go bankrupt in 1980. They never recovered from the loss. Uh, you talked about how around 1970... Cyclamate was banned in the U.S. Then in the 70s, the FDA said, you know, actually, we might ban saccharin. Um, And they got inundated. They got a million letters, just about a million letters. And I'm going to read from one of them that you print in the book. Um, It's by uh, Josephine Novak of Buffalo, New York. And she writes, please don't do this. And she says, quote, I live on the edge of Lake Erie, and I am, with no choice in the matter, obliged to drink water which has been heavily polluted, sometimes with known carcinogenic effluents. I am surrounded by carbon monoxide fumes and breathe urban industrial air. I am peripherally affected by smokers all around me. In fact, my life is one big cancer risk, which I am powerless to control. Surely then, if I decide to take one further, very minor risk of developing cancer, it must be my decision." People did not want saccharin banned, did they? No. In the words of one uh, member of Congress who'd served for over 20 years, and keep in mind, this is 1977, right? So a few things have happened in the previous 20 years. She had never seen an issue so activate her constituents to protest and write as did the proposed ban on saccharin. Now, you are kind of tough on artificial sweeteners. Uh, in your book, you say um, in Empty Pleasures that when you strip foods of their undesirable qualities, it's, quote, a form of socially acceptable bulimia, a way that the food itself can be eaten but not digested. And thanks to artificial sweeteners, um, it has been the most popular way of dealing with our national eating disorder over the last 50 years. That doesn't sound like you think we've made a very good bargain. <laughs> I think for individuals in the middle of a food system that's incredibly complicated, right? Small amounts of most things that you consume are fine. And when I wrote the book, I had a lot of encouragement to write something that was just very critical of artificial sweeteners. And instead, I wanted to tell the balanced story. But what I found on balance is that, you know, understanding how to moderate one's desires in the midst of consumer options is a very important and difficult part of reaching maturity, right? Of living in balance with yourself, your skin, your planet. And so I do think in their own, what may seem small to some people, but really not small, not small when you consider the messages that bombarded Americans for a good 50 years about why do without? Why not have it? Why not indulge yourself right now? And that led to purchasing something Mm -hmm. and putting it into your body. And especially given the amplified sweetness, now I, I really feel artificial sweeteners have made it much more difficult to simply eat when you're hungry and know what it even means to be hungry. Carolyn Thomas is author of the book Empty Pleasures, the story of artificial sweeteners from saccharin to Splenda. She is a professor of American studies and vice provost at the University of California, Davis. Carolyn, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. It's been really fun. Sugar. Oh, honey, honey. 
So as Thomas mentioned, the rollout of NutraSuite was very impressive, and it was managed by a CEO who was lauded for his work on it. He had to tamp down safety concerns, he had to make sure that the marketing was brilliant, which he did. But the launch of NutraSuite was neither the beginning nor the end of fame for this particular CEO, who had been in government before, and he would be again. In the 1980s, President Reagan appointed him as special envoy to the Middle East, where he met with the leader of Iraq, Saddam Hussein. And in 2001, when George W. Bush was inaugurated, the man who had helped launch NutraSuite, Donald Rumsfeld, became Secretary of Defense. We've got a link to Carolyn Thomas's book on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Last month, the left engine on a Southwest Airlines flight failed, killing one passenger. For many of us, that stoked our fear of flying. But that Southwest flight marked the first fatal U.S. airline accident in nearly a decade. Last year, there were 35 million airline flights across the world. And two, just two of them, caused accidental fatalities. That makes dying on a plane considerably less likely than getting hit by lightning. So the question for people who are scared to fly is how you internalize that data and how you can approach flying in the same way that you might stroll down the street or drive to a restaurant or ride your bike. Eugenia Chang is a mathematician who joins us from time to time to talk about math and our everyday lives. She's the author of the book Beyond Infinity, and she happens to grapple with a fear of flying. We spoke last year about how she overcame her fear, and she says it was about understanding both data and psychology. It's a story about statistics and probability and how we can use mathematics and logic to understand our emotions. Because what I noticed about my fear of flying is that no matter how many times somebody told me the same thing, oh, it's Mm. much more likely that you'll die in a car crash, it didn't make my fear go away. And I think I'm a reasonably logical person. I am a mathematician after all. So I wanted to get to the bottom of this instead of just telling myself I was stupid. Because if I keep telling myself I'm stupid, My fear stays there and it doesn't help. So let me just go back to the statistics again. And you can tell me how you uh, worked against this or why or even why your fear stuck with you. But you say in 2016, just 271 people died in commercial plane crashes worldwide compared with 1.3 million in road crashes. So in some ways, the statistics really do kind of underscore the fact that it's kind of silly to be scared when your plane's about to take off. And yet I and many other people are still terrified. So something Mm. has to be going on. I don't think it's fair for us simply to say everybody is stupid. So what is going on? I decided that it's about three things. One is to do with conditional probability, which is one of those things that can be very confusing if you ever took any kind of stats class in school at some point. Conditional probability is the probability that something will happen given that something else has already happened. Mm. And so in this case, I think it's about the probability that supposing that there has been a plane crash, what is the probability that you will die given that a plane crash has happened? So it's about the amount of control you have after it's happened. And that probability is awfully, 
awfully bad. Hmm. So there are plenty of car crashes that are sort of minor car crashes or the safety features of the cars are really fantastic at the moment. So all the airbags go off and everyone's wearing a seatbelt and then you can survive. And that's the thing that terrifies me. It's the fact that, okay, I know that a plane crash is unlikely, but if it does happen... It's a, it's a pretty dire outlook. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I realized that my fear is much more related to conditional probability than absolute probability. That's interesting. So you've kind of switched from the probability that this plane will crash, which is not very good, to the probability that if it crashes, uh, you're not going to be around anymore, which is actually very, very good. Mm-hmm. And so it showed me that to try and convince myself, I needed to switch from thinking about conditional probability to probability. And that was actually much more helpful to me than simply telling myself I was being illogical. So another thing that helped me think about it is the math of expected values. So the expected value is the probability that something will happen multiplied by what you get out of it. So, for example, the probability of winning the lottery is very small, but then the expected value, Mm -hmm. you take that probability and you multiply it by the jackpot because that's what you would actually get out of it if you did win. And so for me, the expected value, as it were, of dying in a plane crash is so bad, it's infinity. It's infinity (laughs) bad. And so (laughs) no matter what I multiply that by, the expected value is infinity. Because if you multiply infinity by anything, it's still infinity, right? Right, right. And so the expected value for me is negative infinity. So no wonder I'm terrified. (laughs) So what did you do to, I mean, are you still just completely terrified to take planes? Or did you talk, did you, uh, you know, sort of work with yourself to, you know, take yourself down a few notches when you're on a plane? Well, there was a final thing I noticed, and that was to do with rate of change. And that is not just the probability, but the way in which the probability is changing as it goes along. And I realized that the the time when the risk is really getting bad is during takeoff. So you go from pretty zero risk, you're just sitting calmly in a plane, stationary on the floor, and then you start taxiing and then it starts revving up. And during takeoff is really dangerous. That's when lots of bad things happen. And Mm. so the probability and the expected value shoots from zero to infinity in that time of takeoff. And so I realized I needed to just focus on my state of mind during takeoff. And I actually overcame it using some cognitive behavioral therapy techniques. I realized that what was triggering me to think about it at that point was the sound of the engine revving up. Hmm. And so I actually downloaded the sound of an engine revving up and I sat at home on my couch and I listened to it over and over again until I associated that sound with me sitting on my couch at home instead of thinking about the probabilities in the plane. And that really helped me. Did that work? When Now when you're in a plane, do you kind of feel like you're on your couch at home? I do. It reminds me of being on my couch at home. And I, I have to admit that still my best technique for, for not being afraid during takeoff is to be so tired that I fall asleep before takeoff. Um, by the way, for people who are scared of planes, when you say... It's pretty dangerous when you're taxing down the runway, you, like you're about to, to take off. It's not, I assume it's not actually that dangerous. Oh, I mean, I, I don't mean it's actually <laughs> dangerous, but that's when the probability goes right. up. The mass. Okay. It's, it is, where if something is going to happen, that's when it's most likely to happen. It's still very, very unlikely. And actually, rationally, if you're, if you're close to the ground, it's much less dangerous because you're still very close to the ground. Are there other things you hear, like in the news or whatever it is, um, that show you that we have not a great grasp on statistics 
And that sometimes leads to these ira- maybe not irrational fears, but fears, let's say, that are maybe not in line so. with statistics. Yes. And I think it is to do with expected values and conditional probability, because some people have a fear of something and that if you're if the, the outcome is much worse, then even though the probability is small, then we'll be much more afraid of it. And so it's not just about the sheer probability. And so there are things like dangerous dogs where Mm -hmm. some people think the idea of being attacked by a dangerous dog is so much worse than being in a car crash that although it's very unlikely that fear is worse Mm. and so my other my other foible of fear is walking over grates in the sidewalk I heard about someone in New York who fell down that the grate collapsed and he fell down it and died and that sounded to me like such a terrible it just sounded so bad it sounded way worse than dying in a car crash and so now I won't walk over grates and so the other thing is that that the the inconvenience to me of not walking over grates isn't that much and so I might as well take that step as it were <laughs> whereas not getting in a car would be pretty inconvenient in modern Hmm. life. And so I feel like I sort of have to deal with that, even though the danger of cars is is quite high. And I'll mitigate it by wearing my seatbelt and things like that. Whereas stepping around a grate is not a huge inconvenience. I apologize to people in the sidewalk who I sort of get in the way of them when I step around the grate, but I will not step on a grate. Um, Are you telling me that before you read this story about the guy in New York, you were fine walking over grates? I wasn't completely fine. I didn't feel great about <laughs> okay. it. But this spoke were. to a somewhat pre-existing fear that you had. <laughs> yes. So when okay. I heard this story, I felt validated. And I think sometimes validating people's fears is important because otherwise, otherwise I certainly feel the need to play up the fear more. If everybody tells me I'm being stupid, then I feel like I have to, to show that the fear is real. Uh, have you ever thought about collecting statistics on people falling through grates to see if it's, in fact, uh, you know, a fear a that you should have? There was a wonderful episode on, I think it was on WBZ on Curious City, where they actually looked into this in Chicago. And you know what? I felt validated again because I'm not the only person with this fear. So if anyone's listening out there, you're not alone. And I think it's all about infinite, ex- infinitely bad expected values, and that is the rationale behind it. And I think that we need to defend the fact that our fears are rational. We just have to look a bit harder to find what is the rational explanation for them. Eugenia Chang is a scientist in residence at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and she's the author of the forthcoming book, The Art of Logic in an Illogical World. Eugenia, thank you so much. Thank you. Lots of us don't like going to the doctor, and lots of us are nervous about it beforehand. You've got to sit in a waiting room, you've got to get poked, and you're going to get looked at naked. But after the appointment, assuming nothing went terribly wrong, you can generally breathe a sigh of relief. Author Adam Tanner says, not so fast. It may be what happens after the appointment that should really raise your blood pressure. Your doctor obviously has a tremendous amount of private data about you. And we have passed a lot of laws and invested a lot of time to make sure that what happens in the doctor's office stays in the doctor's office. But in fact, it doesn't. There's actually a robust market in the buying and selling of patient data. Tanner is the author of Our Bodies, Our Data, How Companies Make Billions Selling Our Medical Records. He's also a fellow at Harvard University's Institute for Quantitative Social Science, Adam, welcome. Thank you for having me. So how much of our uh, medical information is bundled off and sold? Because I don't think 
anybody thinks about that when they're uh, at the doctor's office. So just to walk you through how this works, you, you go into the doctor's office and you close the door and you think that you and the doctor are having an intimate conversation. Nobody beyond the walls of the office will know what's going on. But in reality, data about us is recorded in all steps of the medical process, and often that information is sold in a multi-billion dollar marketplace. There are certain pieces of information that are taken off about you. Your name may not be on it. It may not have your exact birth date, but it has lots of information about you, and it's joined with other information about you over time. So in essence, what happens is a commercial dossier about you and your medical problems exists and it is part of this big multi-billion dollar trade. Okay, so I've got a bunch of questions about this. You don't know this is happening. Does your doctor know this is happening? So what's so surprising about this medical trade is that there are many people in the health system itself that may not exactly know what's going on. So the nurse that draws blood may not know that the lab, such as a big company like LabCorp or Quest, they may be selling the data. The doctor may not know that the electronic health record system that he or she uses could be selling the data. The, the doctor or even the front office people may not be aware that the insurance claims that they file with the insurance companies are insurance sold. And the pharmacist at the counter where you get your prescription, that individual pharmacist may not know that the company, the master company, whether it's Walgreens or, or CVS or others, that they themselves are all participants in this big uh, data bazaar of your medical information. At what point? Is it the person who runs the hospital, the person who runs the doctor's practice? Like, at what point does somebody say, I'm going to sell this stuff? So typically, it happens on a big national scale. So if it's the pharmacies which sell copies of your prescription data, that's taken on a corporate level within the data department. If it's the... Um, it may not be the doctor's office that per se has agreed, but they have signed a long contract with lots of fine print in it with the electronic health record system. And that contract may say, we may sell on an anonymized basis information about your patients. And as I mentioned, it's many different sources, but it's all joined up in a master dossier. So you might be uh, patient XYZ, your prescription and your insurance and your doctor's notes, all of those things could be joined up and often are by these commercial data companies, these data miners. So does that mean that somewhere out there, somebody in one of these privileged companies that has this data like actually knows not just that patient XYZ has these problems and these prescriptions, but that that patient is me. Well, they could know that if they wanted to, but their business is something very different. Their business is about the promotion of drugs for sales and marketing. And their client is typically uh, these big drug companies who want to sell to individual doctors. So although you're in the system and there's a dossier about you and your, your health problems, it, and does it, it have my name on it? It doesn't have your name on it. It doesn't have direct identifiers, but it has lots of clues to your identity. Let me give you an example of how easy it might be to figure out. So it would have your gender, the name of your doctor, the, what part of town you live in. Now, if you knew just that information about me in the last three places I lived, it might be immediately identifying because I've spent the last year living in Fairbanks, Alaska, where I was teaching. Before that, I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Before that, I lived in Belgrade, Serbia. So if you had that maybe <laughs> Yeah, that unique... sounds like it'll narrow it down to like just you. Right, exactly. So I may be the only male my age in those three right. places. Now, 
that's maybe an extreme example, but you may have a, a country house or somewhere where you go relatively frequently, occasionally have medical things happen there. All of a sudden, that pairs you down. Maybe you go visit relatives in a different city. So all of these things could be used to identify you. Now, one thing I haven't told you so much about is that there are also dossiers on your doctor. And what the drug companies are very interested in doing is knowing which doctors prescribe their drugs or not. And that way they can target the sales of their medications by seeing who is a loyal user of their drugs, who is not, and then sending salespeople over to them to make the pitch based on that information they know about your doctor. So that sounds, correct me if I'm wrong, that sounds like the real goal. They want to know who will prescribe that blood pressure medication, who will prescribe that medication for you know, people have this hormone problem or that hormone. Like they want to know who are the rich targets, right? Right. And it can be incredibly sophisticated. So, for example, the sale of blood test data can be done very quickly. So you might have a blood test on Thursday. The doctor says, come back on Tuesday and we'll discuss the results. The, the pharmaceutical company may receive those results the next day and see that there is a patient at Dr. Jones's office. They know the doctor's name, but not the patient's name that has such and such a disease. They could dispatch a salesperson to the doctor on Monday, the day before you arrived, and say, Dr. Jones, I understand you have a patient uh, with this ailment. Let us tell you about this new great medication that we have. Now, maybe there is a new great medication and maybe that visit is valuable for the doctor's information, or maybe they're selling some drug that could be had much more cheaply in generic form. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Adam Tanner, author of Our Bodies, Our Data, How Companies Make Billions Selling Our Medical Records. So aside from the fact that most people do not want their data being sold off to the highest bidder, what do you think is the worst thing? What do you worry about the most that could be done with this data? The, the biggest problem ultimately for me is that the whole system of healthcare is built on trust. You need to be able to go to your doctor and say, doctor, here's my intimate problem. I'm telling you my mental health issue, my sexual health issue, whatever the issue is. And you need to be able to tell people throughout the system with great confidence that it's going to be kept confidential. I fear that as people learn more widely about the sale of data, that the confidence in the system would be undermined. The same way, there are certain things that you expect to be private. You expect a conversation with a religious pastor or a priest to be private. Now, it would be really interesting for social scientists to study <laughs> what people say yeah. to their, to their uh, priests. Right, for confessions to be sold off and anonymized. Right, right. It would be fascinating, but it would be perhaps undermining of the system. People might be less confident. You could think of people talking to their accountant or criminal defense lawyers. All those things would be interesting to learn about, but it would be uh, sapping of, of the confidence. The other problem with the, the big uh, circulation of data about you is that that information can be pieced together with other information to re-identify you. And possible reasons to do that would be a workplace rival, it might be a former lover, it might be a political opponent. If you look at the political atmosphere in this country, it, was, it would be easy to believe that people would piece together that to harm their political adversaries. So there's lots of these kinds of information can be used in bad ways in lots of different ways. You could use it to create identities, to get free medical care. You could use it for other kind of hacking or criminal behavior on the internet. So there are reasons to be concerned 
I think the big question here uh, that probably everybody wonders is, this is legal? I mean, th- th- this seems like a lot of information to know about a patient. And I, my understanding was that there's a lot of procedures in place that doctors know about to, you know, make sure that privacy is maintained around patients. So, again, this is legal? This is legal. This, so the rules in the United States protecting health information are called HIPAA. Now, HIPAA rules say that you have to remove the name of the patient. You have to remove certain identifiers before you can sell the data in the ways that we've been talking about. But once you have removed the name and the Social Security number and some other identifiers, the data is no longer considered yours. So it might be a blood test that comes from inside of you and reveals some horrible thing about you. It might be a urine test, some kind of skin sample. That seems pretty intimate. But if your information is removed according to the HIPAA standards, you have no say on what happens to that beyond. How did you discover in the first place that hospitals or your CVS and your Walgreens, that kind of thing, how did you discover that um, big entities are basically selling off your data to these people who, as you say, put together dossiers about you? It's much harder to figure this out or to learn about this trade than it should be because it is our information. I worked for many years as a foreign correspondent. I worked five years covering the Kremlin, for example. And I had to use the same investigative techniques that I used (laughs) to find out what was going on in Russia's Kremlin. Those same techniques were needed to figure out what's going on with our medical data. Now, I had written a first book called uh, What Stays in Vegas, and that's about the sale of our data outside the world of medicine. Initially, I thought, in that book, I'll put a chapter about medicine and I'll see what happens with our medical data. But the trade in our medical data was so vast and it was so complicated that I put that aside and I wrote the second book, Our Bodies, Our Data. Hmm. Do you think it's possible that uh, that doctors, that hospitals, whatever, that they are going to say at some point, we're out? Like, we're not selling you our data. We don't want to be part of this anymore. We're not interested. The reason that it's complicated is that it's built in or baked into so many of the contracts. So if you want to have Cerner, which is one of the big electronic health records, it may be written into the system that they can make this secondary use of the data. They can sell it if they choose to. Now, not every company does. There are insurance companies that don't sell your data. There are these electronic record systems that don't sell the data. But it would be difficult for the individual, it would be difficult for the institution, such as a hospital, to pick and choose just based on what they do with the data, because you might think that they're actually very good on all the other aspects, except they sell the data. So it it may need something more like a bigger national discussion and maybe some legislation to empower patients and, and individuals to have more of a say on what happens to their own personal information. And do you think we're ready for that? Do you think that's going to happen? Well, it's very hard to predict in today's political world anything that's going to happen. And the fact that we're, we're in a period right now in which over and over again we're discussing whether to change the system of, of health care delivery in the United States. The interesting thing about that d- discussion is that if we were to change and eliminate Obamacare, we open up the situation in which pre-existing conditions could be a cause to deny you health care. And all of this is one of the reasons why you might be concerned if your data is in wide circulation. 
Nowadays, there are some forms of discrimination that are legal based on your health data. So, for example, a life insurance company can deny you life insurance based on your health conditions. Based on any health conditions? Not just, like, I know that uh, life insurance companies ask about whether you're a smoker or a non-smoker, but can they do it based on, like, genetic conditions that are just, you know, take a toll on your health? For life insurance, yes. But now employers are not supposed to use that information, but suppose an employer knows that you are in worse health than someone quite similar to you who's up for a promotion that could factor in their judgment. And if we change the health rules in the future, so if you had a pre-existing condition or a propensity to a pre-existing condition, and this is where it becomes interesting, based on data like you, our analytical model suggests that maybe you are a bigger risk, then perhaps you would be denied health insurance or be or given some kind of limitations on how much they would pay for that category. And that's why all of these things are interesting because they do impact people in a big way, often when you don't really expect it. Adam Tanner is the author most recently of Our Bodies, Our Data, How Companies Make Billions Selling Our Medical Records. Adam, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also say goodbye this week to our interns, Alec Graney and Rowena Lindsay. We wish them all the best as they venture out into the world. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.